out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my producer, Joel, here in the studio with me. And today, we are covering another very dark event in American history, and that is the San Ysidro McDonald's Massacre. This is probably, I think mass shootings are just one of the most terrifying things I could you could ever find yourself in. It's Definitely. truly a nightmare uh, that I think, I know I've had that that very nightmare before. And right, me too. I can't really imagine of anything scarier that you could really encounter in public other than some crazy person, you know, opening fire on you. But this event took place quite a long time ago, actually back in 1984. But when I cover these dark events, I just want to make it absolutely clear that I don't do them to glorify the shooter in any way, shape or form. In fact, I do it for several reasons. One, I do it to remember the victims of this horrible event. But also, I think it's important to go back and revisit some of these horrible things that happened and try to figure out if we can, you know, even if it's just something like giving you a little bit more awareness when you're out in public and make you think twice about, you know, being in crowds or, you know, where you're going or even just looking over your shoulder, making you a more cautious person. I know for me personally, just from covering these types of things, it's really made me think about everything when I'm out in public, especially or in Walmarts or just large areas with lots of people. I always am very alert and just kind of always looking over my shoulder and all around me and really ready for anything, you know, to happen. Cause I mean, just gosh, probably a few months ago here in Boulder, Colorado. So, you know, 30 minutes away from where I live, there was a grocery store that was shot up by, you know, a person that just for whatever reason decided that they wanted to murder a bunch of people at the grocery store that day and so and and a king supers and there's so many of those here in colorado so yeah so every time i go i mean that's the (sighs) grocery store i shop at and every time i go in there i just it's hard not to think about these things that happen and Mm -hmm. it's just the times we live in i guess unfortunately that we have to be so cautious and careful so i think it's good to cover these things in in those types of ways and you know really Hopefully you can take away something from this and at the same time, the victim stories can continue to be told and can never be forgotten. Before we get into the episode though, I wanted to remind everybody if you need some relief to help you chill out and just, you know, kind of mellow your body out, definitely check out CBD at higherlovewellness.com. That is my company. And we actually just recently released a new flavor of CBD oil and CBD wax. And that is the watermelon haze. Absolutely amazing stuff. It really does smell and have those notes of watermelon in it. It's really, really good stuff. It's great for just kind of mellowing you out at the end of a long day. Yeah, it's still in part of my routine, you know, yeah. every day before bed. It's good stuff, man. It Absolutely. really does work. And if you haven't tried it before, uh, you can actually get 10% off your order with code HOMIES at higherlovewellness.com. So just wanted to throw that out there for everybody. Also, this episode's brought to you by Halo Collar, Babel and every plate and just a quick reminder for everyone josh's new podcast planet sleep uh, first episode is dropping this coming up monday on the 26th yeah very and excited about super that. excited about that we will leave all the links in the description box below for you uh, we're on all platforms from apple Podcasts, spotify and youtube and you can find us at planet Sleepcast on social media on social media yeah and you can just search planet sleep podcast on all those those platforms and you'll find us so we'd love for you to join us over there absolutely 
and yeah links will be in the description for you but yeah let's go ahead and get into the san ysidro mcdonald's massacre in the late afternoon on wednesday july 18th 1984 about 45 people were inside a mcdonald's in san ysidro california a district of san diego just two miles north of the mexican border and five miles from tijuana mexico the mcdonald's was on a two-lane road next to interstate 5 in a pretty busy area with multiple small businesses, restaurants, and houses nearby. Most of the people in the restaurant were either Mexican or Mexican-American, and friends and family members were gathered for a late lunch or afternoon snack. Parents had brought their kids to burn off energy in the McDonald's play place while they sipped coffee and chatted. The employees were busy behind the counter, hustling and bustling in the kitchen, fulfilling orders for the drive through and all the patrons inside. Around 3.40 p.m., a black Mercury marquee pulled into the parking lot. 11-year-old Armando Rodriguez was playing with a football across the street and watched his car pull in and park. A man then stepped out, wearing camouflage pants and a maroon t-shirt. He had three guns strapped around his body. Armando kept watching the man as he entered the restaurant, and it was hard to tell what was going on. The man was motioning to people inside, telling them to get down. A woman ran for the door, but before she made it outside, the man turned and shot her with a spray of bullets. Moments before, the gunman had pointed an Uzi submachine gun, capable of firing 600 rounds per minute, at the employee behind the counter, 16-year-old John Arnold. John looked up to see the gun in his face, and another employee called out, Hey John, that guy's going to shoot you. The man pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. He then lowered the gun to inspect it, and John assumed that this was some kind of twisted joke and just turned to walk away. A few patrons headed for the door, but most either watched nervously or paid no attention to the man with the guns. The man then yelled for everyone to get down and lie face down on the floor. A few witnesses later claimed he said, I'm going to kill you all. Others remembered him saying, I killed thousands in Vietnam, and I want to kill more. An employee behind the counter made a move for the phone to call for help. But that's when the shooting began. At first, the man shot toward the ceiling. Then he turned his gun on the people. When the manager, a 22-year-old newlywed named Neva Kane, heard these first shots, she came out of the office to see what was going on. She was then shot in the left eye at point-blank range and was dead within minutes. John Arnold realized that this was no joke at all and made a move to duck, but was hit in the chest and arm. He curled up under a seat and held his breath, hoping the shooter wouldn't come back his way. 25-year-old Victor Rivera had brought his wife, 23-year-old Maria, and their two children to the restaurant that day, because McDonald's was their four-year-old daughter's favorite place. Maria had just found a table near the door when the shooting started. She grabbed their kids and watched helplessly as her husband turned toward the shooter and begged him to stop. Victor was immediately shot and fell to the floor, screaming out in pain. And the shooter yelled, shut up, and then shot him again and again. He was shot a total of 14 times, and Maria knew he was dead. She and their four-year-old were both wounded, but survived. An 11-year-old girl named Aurora Pena was there that day with a group of six friends and relatives. Her aunt, 18-year-old Jackie Wright Reyes, was pregnant and wanted a fish sandwich. So the group decided to go to McDonald's 
Jackie was carrying her baby, eight-month-old Carlos Reyes Jr., and standing at the counter with her friend, 19-year-old Maria Elena Colmanero Silva and her niece Aurora, and Aurora's friend, nine-year-old Claudia Perez and Claudia's sister, 15-year-old Amelda. When the shooting started, Aurora dropped to the floor and closed her eyes as she was terrified and confused. When she thought the shooter was far enough away, she opened her eyes. But that's when he saw her, and then walked over, and started shooting them while they lied on the floor. Elena was shot in the chest, and Claudia was hit in the cheek, chest, belly, thigh, hip, armpit, and head. They both died. Imelda was only shot in the hand. Jackie had tucked Carlos and Aurora under her body to protect them from the bullets, and she was shot basically from head to toe. 48 wounds in total. Aurora felt her aunt's body jerking around as she was shot. Carlos sat up and started crying. The shooter then heard the baby crying and walked back over. He aimed at Carlos and shot him through the center of the back. And Jackie and Carlos both died. Aurora was hit in the leg and survived, but it took years of guilt and re-triggered trauma for her to realize that it was pointless to ask why. She realized that if this hadn't happened to them, it would have happened to someone else. 18-year-old Michelle Sperry Carncross and 19-year-old Jose Perez and 23-year-old Gloria Gonzalez were all shot and killed by random gunfire. 62-year-old truck driver Gus Versluis was also hit by random gunfire. He was there on a coffee break and was retiring after a 40-year career with the same company at the end of the week. He was lying on the floor moaning, and when the shooter noticed he was still alive, he shot him in the chest several more times and killed him. Ron and Blythe Herrera had stopped in with their 11-year-old son, Mateo, on their way home from a vacation. They were having lunch with their friend Keith Thomas. As shots were fired, 31-year-old Blythe pulled Mateo under a booth, and Ron and Keith ducked under another. When Ron was shot in the arm, he didn't make a sound. He was struck again and again in the stomach, hip, and shoulder, and a ricochet bullet hit him in the back of his head. He never lost consciousness and survived his injuries. Keith was shot in the shoulder, arm, wrist, and left elbow and also survived. Blythe and Mateau were both hit multiple times in the head and sadly died. Aris Delci Vargas Vuelas and Gloria Ramirez Soto had met their friend from Tijuana, Guadalupe Del Rio, for lunch that day. The three women were getting ready to leave when the shooting began. They ducked under the table and when the shooter spotted them, he fired multiple rounds. Gloria wasn't hit, but Guadalupe was hit multiple times, but survived. 31-year-old Aris Delcy was shot in the head. She survived the next day, but died shortly after in the hospital. 45-year-old Hugo Luis Velasquez Vasquez was an international banker who had happened to stop in the restaurant on his way through town. He was shot once in the chest and killed. The shooter continued to walk through the restaurant shooting people at random, and those who were still alive were moaning in pain and made for easy targets. Around this time, Lydia Flores drove through the drive-thru with her two-year-old daughter. She saw a man inside the restaurant firing a gun at the people inside. Terrified, she threw the car in reverse and hit the gas, crashing into a fence. She ducked down, holding her young daughter and hoping the shooter didn't come outside. They both survived. Astolfo and Maricela Felix drove up outside and saw the cracked and shattered restaurant windows 
At first they thought they must be renovating. Seconds later, a hail of bullets struck them both and their four-month-old daughter, Carlita. Carlita was hit in the neck, chest, and abdomen and critically injured. Astolfo was hit in the chest and head, and Maricela was hit in the chest, arms, and face. She was permanently blinded in one eye and lost the use of one hand. As Carlita screamed, Maricela handed her to Astolfo, but he couldn't hold her either. He gave their baby to a stranger, a young woman named Lucia Velasco. Lucia rushed the baby to the hospital, and her husband helped Astolfo and Maricela escape to safety. Outside, three 11-year-old boys, Omar Hernandez, David Flores Delgado, and Joshua Coleman had ridden their bikes through the parking lot. They had gone out for donuts, but Joshua decided he wanted ice cream, so they rode over to the McDonald's. They were on the sidewalk when Joshua heard a man yelling, and when he turned around, he was struck on his right side and fell to the ground. The three boys didn't stand a chance against the barrage of bullets from the Uzi submachine gun, and David and Omar were killed instantly. Joshua was hit in the stomach, buttocks, hands, and arms. He stayed alive by lying perfectly still on the pavement, playing dead for over an hour. Joshua actually gave a news interview from his hospital bed. We'll play a bit of that now. Well, I didn't hear no gunshots until I got there. And then he shot me first, then my other two friends. I thought, I thought, um, I didn't know what it was until I looked down and I was shooting out. Rafael Meza was working at a store up the street and saw the boys get shot. He then ran toward the McDonald's, but before he could get to them, the gunfire was aimed at him, and he had to dive behind a truck to avoid getting shot. Inside the restaurant, Griselda Diaz had dropped to the floor with her young son Erwin, and miraculously, they were able to crawl to a side door and escape. 74-year-old Miguel Victoria Ulloa and his wife, 69-year-old Ayeda Velasquez Victoria, were coming into the restaurant through the west side door. They had come to pick up some burgers to take home with them to Tijuana. When the shooter saw them coming in, he shot Ayeda in the face, and she collapsed on the floor. Miguel was hit, but was still standing. He looked down at his wife and cried out, God damn it, you killed her. He then slid to the ground and reached out to wipe the blood from Ayeda's face while cursing the shooter. The shooter then walked over and yelled back at Miguel, and then shot him point-blank and killed him. The employees in the back of the kitchen didn't really know what was going on until the shooter actually walked in. Alicia Garcia, the fry cook, and two other employees ran to the basement to hide. Guillermo Flores was on the floor in the kitchen holding the phone. He had called the police. He was with five other employees, two men, Alex Velasquez and Alberto Leos, as well as three women, Maggie Padilla, Paulina Aguino, and Elsa Borboa Firo. The shooter looked surprised to see so many people on the floor, and he said, Oh, there's more. And then he yelled, You're trying to hide from me, you bastards, and started shooting some more. Guillermo and Alex ran down the steps and both made it outside through an emergency exit. Alberto had tried to run too, but one of the women held him back, and he was shot four times, once in each arm, once in the right leg, and once in the stomach. When the shooter turned away, Alberto tried to stand up, but couldn't. So he dragged himself to the basement steps and made it to the utility room to hide. 18-year-old Maggie, 21-year-old Polina, and 19-year-old Elsa were all shot in the head and killed. 
When the shooter ran out of bullets, he walked to the counter where he had set a bag of ammunition. Inside the bag was also a radio so he could listen to any news coverage of the shooting. The whole scene was pure chaos, and the man reloaded and then kept walking back and forth, shooting anyone who moved or spoke without a second thought. He didn't hesitate to shoot babies, women, elderly people, or even kids who had just been playing in the McDonald's play place. Most of the victims were killed in the first 10 minutes of the shooting, but now it was after 4 o'clock p.m., and police still hadn't arrived. It turned out officers had been sent to the wrong McDonald's, the location at the Tijuana border, two miles away. They were finally redirected to the correct location at 4.03 p.m., and officers arrived on scene at 4.07 p.m. Make sure you approach from the south, and the CP is at 300 west. The shooting suspect is inside the McDonald's. He is contained, moving around, and there's still shots being fired. People who heard the shots or saw what was happening kept calling for help. Betty Everhart was a retired nurse who lived near the restaurant, and when she heard the gunshots, she assumed it was a car backfiring. But soon two men who were frantically pounding on her door telling her to call the police made her think otherwise. The first police officer to arrive on scene was Mike Rosario, and he was responding to a report that a child had been killed outside McDonald's. Once he arrived, though, he immediately called for backup and requested a SWAT team. Soon, more than 10 officers were positioned behind their vehicles with their guns drawn, trying to assess the situation. Officer Arthur Velasquez watched helplessly as the gunman strolled back and forth, shooting several rounds of ammunition each time he crossed the restaurant. Multiple people were lying in the parking lot. Some were already dead, and several were seriously injured. Bullets had hit neighboring houses. One grazed a firefighter on the scene, and another had hit a man driving on the freeway. The police closed off six blocks of San Ysidro Boulevard, and the highway patrol shut down the interstate. At 4.35, the SWAT team finally arrived and immediately jumped into action, and by 4.55, they had set up snipers on nearby rooftops. They were able to confirm that the shooter was using armor-piercing ammunition, which could penetrate ballistic armor and protective shields. But they couldn't tell how many shooters there were, or if a shooter was holding any hostages near him. The tinted windows of the restaurant were now cracked and shattered from gunfire, and because of it, there was extremely low visibility. The McDonald's was also built on higher ground than the surrounding buildings, and had a retaining wall on three sides, making it that much harder to get a clear view inside. The SWAT commander on scene, Jerry Sanders, had no choice but to hold off on storming the building or giving the all clear to the snipers until he knew more about what was going on inside. They were only authorized to fire if a shooter tried to escape. Meanwhile, Ken Dickey, a 20-year-old college student working behind the counter, and another male coworker had escaped the shooting and hid in the basement utility room. Ten years later, Ken would still be haunted by this decision, wondering if he could have done something to stop the massacre. But they helped more people escape. Three female coworkers ended up in the utility room, followed by a woman with her baby. Alberto Leos the cook, who had dragged himself down the basement steps, hid with the group. He had been shot four times, and they did their best to stop the bleeding and treat his wounds. At this time, he had been on the job for just one week. Alberto ended up surviving his injuries and went on to become a police officer with the San Diego Police Department. Guillermo Flores and Alex Vasquez were the kitchen employees who made it outside. They were able to provide essential intel to the SWAT team, saying there was only one shooter, as far as they knew, He wasn't taking any hostages. His main objective was to kill as many people as possible. 
and to just keep on shooting. By this time, the man had started shooting at the officers outside instead of the people inside. Multiple glass panes had fallen out of the frames, giving officers a much clearer view. At 5.13 p.m., the snipers were given the order to take him out. Chuck Foster was positioned on the roof of the post office next to the McDonald's with the telescope-sided Remington 308 caliber rifle, along with the spotter, Barry Bennett. Within minutes of the order given, a bullet from inside the restaurant took down another window pane. At that moment, Barry spotted the shooter. He told Chuck through the walkie-talkie, All right, mister, now we can do it. At 5.17 p.m., Barry got a clear view, and he said, There he is, right in the window. It's him. Chuck didn't hesitate. As soon as the shooter was in his sights, he fired a single shot. The gunman was hit in the chest, just above his heart, shattering his spinal column. At the same time, two other officers had taken a shot and both missed. But Chuck's shot was all they needed. Because the shooter was now down, and the massacre was over. After confirming that the shooter was dead, first responders went to work immediately helping survivors outside. The SWAT team finally entered the restaurant and found a nightmare they could have never imagined. The massacre had lasted 77 minutes, and during that time the gunman had fired 257 rounds of ammunition, using mainly a 9mm Uzi semi-automatic. He also had a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun and a 9mm Browning semi-automatic pistol, along with another bag of ammunition. 22 people were killed, including the shooter, and 19 more were injured. The youngest victim to die was 8 months old, and the oldest was 74 years old. 17 of the victims who died were inside the restaurant, and 4 were outside in the parking lot. At this time, this was the largest mass shooting by a single person in U.S. history. First responders took the survivors to a nearby building that was being used as an emergency triage area. The seriously injured were eventually taken to different local hospitals to be admitted for further treatment or taken in for surgery. Bay Hospital Medical Center took seven of the victims, all in fair condition when they were admitted. University of California San Diego Hospital took three, all in critical condition, and Community Hospital took five. The youngest victim was four-month-old Carlita Maria Felix, who was critically injured along with her parents Astolfo and Maricela. Carlita was finally released from the hospital on August 7th, about three weeks after the shooting. She and her parents survived. Police officers rescued the people hiding in the basement utility room. After what seemed like an eternity, they heard a knock on the door. At first, they were all terrified, as you could probably imagine. But they cautiously opened the door to find police officers on the other side. They were told to put their hands on the shoulder of the person in front of them and look to the left as they came through the door because they had to walk past all of the bodies that were on the floor on their way to the outside. But there was no way to avoid the horrors inside the restaurant, as there was blood everywhere. Bodies were lying on the floor, slumped over tables, and men, women, little children, and even infants had been brutally slaughtered. The hospitals were overwhelmed by phone calls from people looking for their friends and loved ones, and anyone who thought someone they knew might have been at the restaurant that day frantically called every hospital. Without cell phones, people panicked when they couldn't get a hold of someone. It was absolute chaos. It didn't take long for the police to identify who had done this, as they were able to identify him as 41-year-old James Oliver Huberty. As they pieced together his background, they unraveled a long history of abuse, violence, 
and extremist beliefs that ultimately led to the San Ysidro McDonald's massacre. Now we're going to switch gears a bit and dive into James's background a bit to try to gain a better understanding of what led him to this point. Before we get into that though, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. Let's take a look into the life of James Huberty. James was born in Canton, Ohio on October 11th, 1942. When he was three years old, he contracted polio. Though he had a speedy recovery, he ended up with permanent walking problems. His father Earl had a quick temper and his own health problems to deal with. He had crooked knees and spastic paralysis that caused numbness and pain throughout his body. When James was seven years old, Earl bought a farm in Pennsylvania Amish country and wanted to move the entire family there. But his mother Eisel refused to go. Instead, she became a missionary and moved to a Native American reservation to preach Christianity for a Southern Baptist organization, and she and Earl got divorced in 1950. James was devastated after his mother left, and he became depressed and withdrawn. He was already a loner, and his classmates thought he was odd, and he didn't have friends. He preferred to be by himself. His only companion was his childhood dog, Shep. Eventually, his father got remarried to a young teacher who had her own kids, and James didn't get along with his new family members. When he was 20 years old, he enrolled at Malone College, a small private school that was originally a Christian Bible college and took classes part-time. He also enrolled at the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science to become a licensed embalmer. Around this time, he met his future wife, Edna. James landed a two-year apprenticeship at Don Williams Funeral Home in Canton, Ohio, and he and Edna moved to nearby Masallen and got married in 1965. He liked working at the funeral home because he didn't have to be around people. But the owner, Don Williams, told James he was in the wrong business. Though he was a skilled embalmer, he didn't have the people skills needed to be successful in this industry. He got his license to work as an embalmer and funeral director, but after the apprenticeship, he decided to take Don's advice and change career paths to become a welder. In 1969, he got a job at Babcock and Wilcox, or B&W, an industrial plant in Canton that paid very well. James had continued to take college courses part-time and graduated from Malone College with a sociology degree. He and Etna bought a beautiful red brick home in Masallen, and they purchased all new furniture and completely redecorated it. But in 1971, the house burned down and they lost everything and were forced to move. Thankfully, James was making a decent income at the plant, earning between $25,000 and $30,000 per year. So they bought a new home, and a six-unit apartment building to earn additional income. In the early 1970s, they had two daughters, Zelia and Cassandra. Neighbors and acquaintances were afraid of James. He was still the same odd loner he was when he was a kid, and he rarely spoke to anyone and didn't have any close friends. They were also often alarmed by Edna's parenting. When Zelia was invited to a birthday party at a neighbor's house, Edna told her daughter to physically attack one of the kids. Etna threatened the same kid's mom with a handgun for making too much noise when she was trying to sleep. She actually was arrested and charged after the incident, but she got to keep the gun. James was also arrested once for drunk and disorderly conduct at a gas station, and he was ordered to pay a fine and court costs. Like his wife, he handled conflict in unconventional ways and had issues with violence. He had two dogs that he let roam freely through the neighborhood, and the dogs were completely untrained. They growled and barked at anyone who walked near them. 
and terrified the neighbors. When someone complained about the Huberty family's German shepherd damaging a car on their street, James responded by shooting his own dog in the head with an air gun. The police were called to the house often for domestic violence. After one fight, Etna claimed that James had messed up her jaw and documented the incident by filing a report with the Canton Department of Children and Family Services. When Etna sensed that James was getting angry, she distracted him with tarot cards to prevent a violent outburst. Pretending to read his future in the cards always seemed to calm him down. James was made more dangerous by his love of guns, and he had a large collection that he kept in his bedroom. He could lose his temper and become violent over the smallest disagreements, and he had a habit of shooting randomly from his balcony to blow off steam. In addition to guns, James also hoarded thousands of dollars worth of food and supplies in his home, preparing for a nuclear war or some other apocalyptic event. In 1982, the Canton B&W plant where he worked closed down, and James was laid off. He eventually found work at Union Metal Incorporated, but just a month after starting his new job, he was in a motorcycle accident that ended his career as a welder. He had injured his right arm in the crash and had a permanent twitch. Etna tried to sell the apartment building they owned for some fast cash, but there was fraud in the purchasing agreement, and the deal fell through. James was worried they'd lose their home and wrote to the Mexican government to apply for residence. By January 1984, they had managed to sell their properties and move to Tijuana. But it didn't last. James didn't speak Spanish, and he refused to learn. After just three months, they moved back to the U.S. into a shabby apartment building in the San Ysidro section of San Diego, California, just north of the border. They rented a two-bedroom apartment for $475 per month, which is a little over $1,200 in today's money. James got a job as a security guard at a condo, but he was let go in early July 1984. In fact, he was fired for not performing his job duties and general instability. On Tuesday, July 17, 1984, the day before the shooting, James called a mental health center for an emergency appointment. The receptionist told him someone would call him back in two hours. James sat by the phone for hours and hours waiting for someone to call. And when he spoke to the receptionist, he sounded calm and composed. So it wasn't marked as an emergency call. The response time was likely going to be 48 hours and not two hours. Plus the receptionist had misspelled his name as Schuberty instead of Huberty, making it less likely he'd get a quick response. The next morning, July 18th, James had to go to court for a traffic violation. Afterward, he and Edna took 10-year-old Cassandra and 13-year-old Zelia for lunch at the McDonald's across the street from the courthouse. Then they spent the afternoon at the San Diego Zoo. They had a nice day together, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. But then, while they strolled around the zoo with their young daughters, James turned to his wife and said, Well, society had its chance. He often said strange things like this, so she just ignored it. They got home around 3.30 p.m., and James calmly went into the bedroom and packed up a 9mm Uzi semi-automatic rifle and a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun and a 9mm Browning semi-automatic pistol and a cloth bag filled with hundreds of rounds of ammunition. He told Etna he was leaving and kissed her goodbye, something he didn't normally do. And when she asked where he was going, he said, I'm going hunting. Hunting for humans. Etna didn't understand what he meant, but he seemed calm, 
and she didn't try to stop him. He then drove to a McDonald's in San Ysidro, three blocks from his apartment, and carried out his deadly plan. Two days after the shooting, victims' cars were still in the McDonald's parking lot, many with shattered windows from stray bullets. A mangled red bicycle was still lying on the grass. A woman's white shoe, splattered in blood, sat in the parking lot. There was glass everywhere from the car windows and the doors, and windows of the restaurant being blown out. The McDonald's Corporation responded to the shooting by requesting a stop to all commercials nationwide. Shortly after this request, Burger King, one of the restaurant's chain's closest competitors, did the same. There were so many victims that the local funeral homes couldn't accommodate all the grieving families, and they had to use the San Ysidro Civic Center to hold many of the services, and Mount Carmel Church held back-to-back services for the victims' families. Shortly after James was identified, the police found his wife Edna, and by that evening she had been brought in for questioning. For weeks, San Diego Police Chief Bill Cullender and other investigators continued to piece together his life before the mass shooting, and what had led him to such a senseless act of violence against innocent people. Bill was a seasoned officer who had been on the force for 28 years, and he said that this was the most terrible thing he had ever seen, and called it a sickening massacre. The investigation revealed that the most dangerous weapon James used during the shooting, the Uzi submachine gun, had been purchased legally. At the time, the only U.S. importer of the Uzi was a company called Action Arms Limited, in Philadelphia owned by Harry Stern. If James really did buy the gun legally, he would have bought it from Harry's company. Witnesses had seen James casing several locations around the McDonald's leading up to the shooting, including the post office and a Big Bear grocery store. Investigators believe he decided McDonald's was a better target. Neighbors and former co-workers came forward to talk about the warning signs they saw on James before the shooting. He was an angry man obsessed with guns and the apocalypse, and most disturbingly, several people had heard him talk about wanting to shoot somebody. Those who knew him in Ohio weren't surprised when they heard what he had done. They had known him as a bitter person who was resentful that the failed economy in northeastern Ohio had cost him his job. After a fight with a neighbor, James allegedly called and threatened, You just wait. I'm going to get you when you are alone sometime. The only time he was ever friendly and talkative was when someone asked him about his gun collection. Once he went shooting with a coworker who was also a gun collector, and he was shocked when James started shooting his Uzi submachine gun at a large rock. Which this was very dangerous because the bolts could ricochet back at them, and no responsible gun owner would ever do something like that. This same coworker said James would talk about rapists and how he would torture them as punishment. He would describe things like cutting off their fingers and hands and stringing them up by their testicles. James had moved his family to California to find a better life, but he failed to keep a job there too. He had told his former coworkers that if he couldn't make a living for his family, he would take everyone else down with him, as he believed the country was heading downhill and working-class people were suffering the consequences. He blamed Ronald Reagan and the government, who he often said were conspiring against him. He also reportedly hated children and was prejudiced against people of Mexican descent, which accounted for most of his victims. The day before the shooting, a neighbor named Jose Luis Palacio ran into James at the apartment's trash bin. Jose is a professional bounty hunter, and he mentioned that he was working on a case involving two Mexican men who jumped bail. He was surprised when James suddenly got very angry and started ranting about those Mexicans and how they're always getting into somebody else's business. 
Jose cut the conversation off at that point because he's Mexican, something James must not have known or else he knew and just didn't care. A neighbor named Wanda Hazley told the New York Times that a week before the shooting, James's 13-year-old daughter, Zelia, came to her apartment for help. Her face was bruised and swollen, and she told Wanda that her dad had slapped her around. Zelia and Cassandra sometimes babysat for Wanda, so she knew a lot about their family. According to Etna, James had forced Zelia to learn karate at self-defense, working her way up to black belt after she was beaten up by a group of kids. Wanda said James was obsessed with his gun collection and slept with a gun under his pillow every night. Here's a little clip of Wanda and some of the other neighbors talking about James. I've seen the girls upset because of their father and they had mentioned that they didn't care for their father much. You know, he was always uh, yelling at the kids, you know, the small kids. The minister who married James and Etna, Dave Lombardi, said James had inner conflicts stemming back to his mother abandoning him as a child. Dave described James as having a nervous anxiety that built up inside until it exploded in rage and violence. At times, they had seemed like a normal family. They liked to take family bike rides together, and James seemed to have a soft spot for the elderly. On the rare occasion that he smiled in public, it was likely directed toward a senior citizen. Though they were working class people, the family always wore nice clothes. James dressed like a successful executive, and Etna chatted with the neighbors about the properties they owned in other parts of the country their investments, and various other streams of income. She claimed that James only took the job as a security guard in order to provide proof of regular income before they could move into their apartment. And within days of the shooting, Etna packed up all their belongings, and early one morning before the sun came up, she fled with her young daughters. They had to move multiple times within the year because they received death threats, and the girls were bullied at school. Several other residents of their former apartment building moved into motels, too afraid to stay where the mass shooter had lived. Etna gave her first interview after the shooting from a secure location. She said the massacre would have never happened if the mental health center James had contacted had gave him the help he needed. And she specifically mentioned that he needed to be prescribed medication. Here's some of that clip. I think he called. I heard him talking to someone about it on the phone. And then he came out in the kitchen, he told me that they would call him with an appointment. And he sat in a chair with the phone beside him, waiting and waiting, and no one ever called back. At some point, she also revealed that James had tried to kill himself before their family left Ohio, and Etna had wrestled the gun from his hands. Etna tried to sue McDonald's and the B&W plant, James's former employer, for $7.88 million. She filed the lawsuit in an Ohio court in 1986, two years to the day after the shooting. And she alleged that James's mental health had deteriorated as a result of being exposed to toxic metals as a welder and from eating McDonald's food. Etna claimed he went to McDonald's often, and his meal of choice was chicken McNuggets, which he ate regularly. According to the lawsuit, the combination of high levels of lead and cadmium from his 14-year welding career and monosodium glutamate or MSG from eating McDonald's food had caused James to develop delusions and out-of-control rage. MSG is used in foods as a flavor intensifier and is considered safe to use in food by the FDA. From January to July 1984, McDonald's served approximately 4.1 billion McNuggets and no one else had reported any violent or psychotic behavior. The theory that MSG had caused his violence and delusions was described in a paper called MSG Massacre, 
written by a psychologist named Robert W. Hall, giving credibility to the case. Before filing the lawsuit, Edna tried to file a workers' compensation claim against B&W. In the claim, she alleged that the exposure to toxins caused her husband to experience hallucinations, convulsions, and kidney failure. The coroner, David Stark, performed the autopsy on James, and he found no alcohol or drugs in his system. But he did find high levels of lead and cadmium. These levels could have been caused by car exhaust, though, or just the frequent use of firearms. The San Diego coroner's office had to decide what to do with James's brain. Use it for research or release it to the family, or destroy it. Some think that the key to understanding mass killers like James can be found by studying their brains after death but they ultimately decided that further research wouldn't reveal any new or useful information. The brain was kept for 90 days and then destroyed. Unless there are still questions about a case, 90 days is a standard amount of time blood, tissue, and organs are kept before being destroyed. During the shooting, victims heard James say he had killed thousands of people in Vietnam. But that wasn't true, because he had actually never served in the military. Later, there were theories that James was schizophrenic, and believed he had served in the military and had been in combat. There were several lawsuits filed against McDonald's and the police, but they were ultimately dismissed, and the courts decided this tragedy was unforeseeable and unpreventable. The San Diego Police Department did learn from the tragedy, and changed how emergency calls are answered, forming the Special Response Team, or SRT, dedicated to hostage rescue and special responses. If this team had been in place in 1984, the massacre could have ended 15 to 20 minutes earlier. They also expanded their SWAT team by more than 100 officers and updated training procedures and equipment. As you can imagine, after the shooting, the community was absolutely devastated. There was a massive blood drive to help victims, but many people were still afraid to leave their homes. Mental health officials opened community crisis centers to help those grieving or in shock. McDonald's had to decide what to do with the San Ysidro location after the horrific shooting took place. Days after the shooting, it was announced the restaurant would be reopened. Residents came together to request that the site be turned into a memorial for the victims. No one could possibly imagine going back to the restaurant after what had happened there. A week after the massacre, dozens of local residents gathered outside of McDonald's because they wanted the restaurant closed and the property to be used for a memorial park for the innocent. They had actually gathered over a thousand signatures to support their cause. Joan Crock, the widow of McDonald's founder Ray Crock, met with the demonstrators on the property. She spoke with one of the leaders of the grassroots effort, 38-year-old Gloria Salas. Most of the demonstrators, including Gloria, were part of the local Mexican community and fought hard to make sure the site was no longer a commercial property. In addition to supporting the demonstrators, Joan set up a survivor's fund to help the families pay for funeral costs and future counseling services. She contributed $100,000 to the fund, and it received many more donations, including $1 million from McDonald's. The restaurant was never reopened, and it was torn down on September 26, 1984. And McDonald's donated the land to the city under the condition that the site is never again associated with their name or used for a restaurant location. San Diego used the land to establish the Southwestern College Higher Education Center at San Ysidro. The college has also erected a memorial for the victims with 21 hexagonal granite pillars from one to six feet tall to represent each of the people who lost their lives that day and a plaque listing their names. And it was actually made by a former Southwestern college student, Roberto Valdez. The center was opened in 1988 and the memorial was unveiled in 1990. 
Glory and other advocates were happy that the location was used for education and to memorialize the victims, saying we turned a tragedy into a triumph. And I 100% agree with that. I think, I think this ended about as good as it really can. Obviously, it's not a good outcome, but the fact that they tore the McDonald's down and McDonald's are just like open it back up and you know it's still being used today. I'm glad they tore it all down and absolutely made this beautiful memorial for all the victims is is really cool and I'm glad glad it's there. But this is one of those events that I feel like most people, especially people 18 to 30 or so, really have never even heard about. And it's just crazy to think that these mass shootings have been going on for a very long time at this point, almost 50 years. Yeah. You know, 22 people. That's, that's a lot of people. When you look at everything together too, I think you get a pretty clear understanding of what happened. I think clearly James was extremely mentally ill and undiagnosed. And perhaps if he had gotten the help that he needed on that day, that maybe it could have prevented this from happening at all. But at the same time, maybe not. I mean, I think there's a lot of signs that just right. would have led James to have done, doing something like this no matter what. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's possible if someone did pick up at that crisis hotline for him and spoke to him, you know, maybe it could have changed the entire outcome of the story. But at the same time, it could have just delayed this from happening in the future. Like James is so far gone that even yeah. maybe just unfortunately that. i think that's the case I yeah think, i think just based on his you know his background and 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 the fact that he was literally lying to people about killing people in vietnam i right. mean he's clear i mean he's clearly very angry and very mentally ill so i don't really think there could have been a lot that could have been no. done to prevent this and this story is just another example that something like this can happen anywhere at any time right yeah i mean it really does show you that you're really not safe anywhere i mean you could be Mm -hmm. having a completely normal day out at basically any public location now and somebody can just decide to you know absolutely destroy as many lives as they want to i mean it's just it's just crazy it's it's hard to really like wrap your head around all this and even really think of the words to say because it's just it happens so much now that we're becoming conditioned to it and right you know it it makes the news cycle for a day or two and then it fades away into you know history and then just seem you know a lot of people just forget about it but Mm -hmm. my hope is to you know hopefully bring these stories to the front of your minds and like i said at the beginning just if anything make you more cautious when you're out out in public i mean Mm -hmm. some of these things are just not prevent you know you can't prevent it you can't prepare for it it just happens and you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I mean, hopefully there's something to be learned here. Obviously mental health, mental health, mental health is like the big, big thing here. I mean, clearly if somebody's not in the right mind state and then really all bets are off. I mean, anything can happen. So, right. you know, if you're somebody out there struggling with mental illness or, you know, you need, need to talk to somebody there's always people out there there's resources out there that are free you know you don't have to to keep going to that dark place there's a way out of it and as much as sometimes it feels like you're trapped and you know it's just only one way and that way is down in a downward spiral just know that there are resources out there there are hotlines there's all sorts of mental health resources to utilize 
you know, to hopefully help help you get the help that you need in order to improve your life and mind state. So we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Again, remember all the people that died in this horrific tragedy and may they never be forgotten. But that's it for this episode of the Lights Out Podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you.